I'm Brian Foster, and this is the Grindhouse Institute. On each episode of this podcast, Jeremy Floyd and I program a triple feature movie night. Each of the movies share common themes, and we discuss them here. Rap, you could join us for today's episode entitled Post-Cold War Spies. In the 1990s, between the Cold War and the War on Terror, the U.S. war machine had a harder time justifying itself. It was ostensibly built up to fight a battle that was over. And Alexander wept, for there were no more superpowers to conquer. So now what? Popular culture had basically two ways of imagining the future of the defense industries and alphabet soup agencies. The first, as a bulwark against flying saucers. The X-Files, Independence Day, and Men in Black illustrated a need for a big government cover-up and to keep the war machine superstructure going full steam ahead. The second was a little more nebulous and is the subject of today's discussion. A rogue enemy, one that's stateless and adept at navigating our increasingly digital world. That type of enemy is harder to point a finger at, one that's more of a MacGuffin. But today's movies do their best to make the case for keeping us safe from them. A ragtag team of former agents are hired to locate and deliver a powerful black box capable of decrypting and controlling virtually all infrastructure. With something so powerful, who could be trusted to wield it? And what would they be willing to do to get it? Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, Sidney Poitier, David Strathairn, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, Mary McDonnell, Stephen Tobolowski, Timothy Busfield, Donna Logue, and James Earl Jones rounds out the incredible cast in Phil Alden Robinson's 1992 film, Sneakers. After his entire team is wiped out during a routine mission, Ethan Hunt is blamed. Now he must use disguises, artificial intelligence, and exploding chewing gum to steal a MacGuffin, avenge his team, and to clear his name. Tom Cruise, John Voight, Ving Rhames, Vanessa Redgrave, Kristen Scott Thomas, Emilio Estevez, Henry Cherney, and Jean Reno round out an all-star cast in Brian De Palma's 1996 thriller, Mission Impossible. A leader of an IRA splinter cell recruits a team of international mercenaries to recover a mysterious silver case. But what's in the case? Why is it so important? And who the hell is the man in the wheelchair? Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, Natasha McAlone, Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, Jonathan Price, and Michael Lonsdale race through the Paris streets at 100 miles per hour to find out in John Frankenheimer's 1998 film, Ronin. Thank you for listening to the Grindhouse Institute. Please enjoy. You know, I could have joined the NSA, but they found out my parents were married. <laughs> Janik Spot. This is a mathematician named Dr. Gunter Janik. Works at a think tank called the Coolidge Institute. Last month, the good doctor gets a grant. $380,000. Way out of profile for a guy like that. It's our job to be curious, so we trace the money. And guess where it comes from? I know you're not going to say Russia. Yeah. <laughs> God, give me a break. We won. They lost, you know? Been in a couple of papers. Yeah, we still spy on them, they still spy on us. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a nice day. It's Sergey, I remember you. Yes, Gregory, that's me. How have you been? Well, these are trying times. I'm sorry about the unfortunate incident. Oh, yeah. It was excessive. Why, Jim? Why? When you think about it, Ethan, it was inevitable. No more Cold War. <laughs> no more secrets you keep from everyone but yourself. Operations you answer to no one but yourself. And then one day, you wake up. The President of the United States is running the country without your permission. The son of a bitch, how dare he? And you realize it's over. You're an obsolete piece of hardware not worth upgrading. You've got a lousy marriage. 62 grand a year. All right, welcome back to the Grindhouse Institute. I'm Brian Foster, and with me as always is Jeremy Floyd. Hello, and how are you? You got about 10 seconds before it's hasta lasagna. Don't get any on Don't get any on you. <laughs> Red light! Green light! <laughs> Love that line. We are heading back to the 90s today for some uh, really badass movies. We have continued our uh, promise to ourselves that we're only going to watch awesome bangers this year. And probably from every year moving forward, we've got three great 90s post-Cold War spy thrillers, Sneakers from 1992, awesome movie, Mission Impossible, or now called M.I. Okay. uh, From 1996, and Ronin from 1998. Uh, Killer block here. They all go together really well. 
And uh, with us today on the show, we have a very special guest. Jeremy, if you could please do the introduction. Yeah. So uh, part of the concept for this block, I think, came out of a conversation uh, our guest uh, and I were having. And um, there is another connection to this guest uh, through some of these movies, which maybe we'll get into a little later. But um, yeah, please uh, welcome uh, concept artist, filmmaker, and recent Academy member, Joanna Bush. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Recent Academy member, congrats. Yeah, no, this is my second year now, um, getting to vote for the films and getting to kind of be a part of the Academy. It's very honored. Definitely. Oh, that's awesome. The honor amongst honors, I would say, in this business. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And you get to be sponsored by kind of your heroes and your peers, and it's really that was the best part is that, you know, they write letters of recommendation and it's really like a wonderful feeling to be part of the community. So yeah, that's awesome. So concept artist, you're part of the pre-visualization of everything or is this more during production? How, how, how does your job work with the whole process? You know, it, it, it actually kind of can be almost at any point, you know, <laughs> like I've done pitch development, pre-production, production, and then most recently post-production, like on the Ripley film, that was all post-production. Yeah. I didn't get to go to Italy, sadly, but, oh. um, yeah. but yeah. I have a lot of respect for what Jeremy does in, in editing now, because oh. it's really incredible what can be done, the kind of recrafting of a story in, in the editing. I had absolutely no idea. It's really fascinating, which is another aspect too about the Academy that I love is that you get to meet people in these other fields that are yeah. so passionate about what they do. I mean, I know nothing about sound design. I would love to like have someone you know, give me a tutorial on sound design because <laughs> I just think it's so influential. Like sneakers uses sound in such yes. an in inventive way. Oh, shit. What are you doing up? I really think almost all of these movies, actually. I, I, Ronin, too, really yeah. stood out that way. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. No, no, yeah, no. I mean, it's... I feel like I've not given it enough credit in the way that it can tell a story. Absolutely. I think yeah. that that adds that level, that one extra level of creating something three-dimensional. You know, you've got a two-dimensional visual you're looking at, but all of a sudden you hear those sounds that you can either relate to or that really relate to what's happening on screen, and it makes the biggest difference. And you're right. Things like sneakers, all spy movies probably benefit from <laughs> a lot of great sound, but also... I don't know, just very particular, maybe even stylized sound effects that kind of accentuate those things that might not right. be fully realistic. Milking the, the, the tension out of it. Yeah, Cinematic. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There you go. Uh, so uh, Sneakers and Mission Impossible and Ronin, should we get into the films? Absolutely. <laughs> I think a, a couple things. Like one, the thing that was kind of fascinating about this block in particular was this period of time in between the sort of end of the Soviet Union and before 9-11 there was this period of time where it's like you know before uh, so from the whatever 50s to the 1991 yeah. there was uh, a, a time where all James Bond movies all spy movies everything along those lines mm -hmm. well it was obviously the West versus the Soviets right and right. like there was always like um, this very clear mission statement in the movie <laughs> itself and like and Culturally speaking, we had this idea of uh, of where those things were, and then w without that, there <laughs> became this like sort of rudderless uh, sense of it. And all three of these movies really feel like it encapsulates that idea, especially since you know in all three of them, each team that we're with is freelance or gone rogue or or you know what I mean. It, it kind yeah. of uh, breaks off from the sort of uh, official ways in which it would have probably been pursued uh, a decade or so before and then additionally uh i i think part of the thing that was really exciting here was uh talking about having joanna on for these ones in particular not only uh because we, we all loved these movies uh but joanna had some personal connections to i, I think sneakers in particular <laughs> yeah i mean uh sneakers is one i'm pretty excited and happy about because 
Both of my parents worked for the NSA, the National Security Agency. And really? James Earl Jones, I feel like, is the coolest representation of that. <laughs> Usually in movies, the NSA is really not depicted very well, you know? And so I felt like, you know, James Earl Jones is... not how the U.S. government does things. <laughs> I want peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We are the United States government. We don't do that sort of thing. I want a Winnebago <laughs> with yeah. a kitchen and a bed. It's not a car dealership, pal. He wants a Winnebago. All right, a Winnebago. Like the two guys that first show up that say they work for the NSA, that's usually the way that the NSA is right, depicted. Yeah. The men and in black kind of, right? Those non Exactly, yeah. 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 They're just yeah. listening on the other end of the line. I thought the FBI was supposed to do this kind of thing. This is outside the NSA's jurisdiction. Unless the NSA didn't want anybody to know about Janik's little black box. I keep thinking about something Greg told me. He said that our codes were based on an entirely different system than the Russian codes. So this box really wouldn't work on them. The only thing it'd really be good for is spying on Americans. What do you want, Mr. Bishop? My dad had like a very, I think, kind of basic sort of badge that I remember like kind of hanging from his door, which is hilarious because like on a film set, you have a badge that's not yeah. that different than what it was, you know. It didn't do like would... an, an ocular scan or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Measure the bones. Did, did your dad anyone? say his voice is his passport? <laughs> you know right, what my favorite yeah. word is? Yeah. <laughs> No, we called them indoor spies, both my yeah. parents. And they were on the linguistic side, so they both knew Russian. Ah, and, oh, um, right so a lot of translating like messages and things like I that? I think so. Translating As like, much as you know, I should codes, say. Yeah. As much yeah. as yeah. I know. Yeah. But she, she also said she had another language, but she would never tell me what it was. And she was so happy she oh, could wow. kind of hold it over me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that, I, that I wanted to know so badly. But um, How yeah, you know, I mean, the closest I got was my dad would play softball at Fort Meade and so we would go you know they would that's where they worked we would go to the see the softball games that was that was close I also think that kind of influenced working on films because I never saw either my parents go into an office yeah. you know they never <laughs> right. like I never saw like what is work I don't know what it is you yeah. know so what we got here it's called a man trap I borrowed this demo from the manufacturer NSA uses the same technology to keep people out of restricted areas at Fort Meade. Card? Now speak right into this box. Hi, my name is Martin Bishop. My voice is my passport. Verify me. But yeah, I mean, my dad loved spy movies. I mean, The Hunt for Red October was his favorite, for sure. <laughs> and um, he loved Where Eagles Dare, which I know you guys also did yeah, on one of your podcasts so yeah so it, it was so funny seeing clint eastwood play the <laughs> the second banana or whatever you know totally. yeah, second third <laughs> banana yeah. yeah 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 i know but i love that dynamic with richard burton and i love that kind of um you know uh, was it a ski lift or was it a funicular yeah, like, or? A, yeah, like a funicular gondola type of yeah, thing. Yeah, the gondola, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's miles cool. up into yeah, the that sky. That piece was nuts. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Incredible. That's very but, interesting, yeah. Yeah, but uh, what Jeremy pointed out before, which I thought was really interesting, was the fact that, yeah, a lot of these characters aren't, they've kind of gone rogue, right? They're right. not working uh, disavowed. for... Disavowed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. of them, yeah. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're no longer doing that business uh, nine to five, I should say. It's kind of interesting how they're sort of like heist movies as spy sure. movies. Yeah. Like there's yeah. this like crossover where you assemble your team, Infiltrate, you know. Infiltrate, exfiltrate. It's the same yeah. thing, right? Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's what's great about these ones in particular. Like they, they still all have the team. I mean, you know, the very next Mission Impossible and then everything going forward, there's uh, there's a, a token team that's like, yeah, there's people to bounce dialogue off of, but like no one's doing anything <laughs> other than uh, other than Tom. 
I mean, everyone's pulled, I, I don't mean the jump to Mission Impossible, but since you mentioned it, it's like everyone uh-huh. pulls off that same exact move where the, the A-lister team gets bumped off in the first half hour of the movie right, now, and then right. you, know, yeah. you gotta get the, the filler ruffians in there, you know, the Kriegers. It was so interesting how Jean Renault, his two characters in Ronin and... Yeah. Are so different, you know. One's much like... nicer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Krieger's kind of a, a, a person that's, uh, you know, an agent of chaos for everything. But uh, Vincent was a little bit of a nicer. Uh, he actually oh. was was part, a heroic part that actually made it through. But yeah, I was thinking that too. I'm like, he's he's this guy that gets things right. He's like, <laughs> if it's in Paris, I'll find it. Okay, go get it. Go get me the 686 Risk prototype with yeah. the yeah, thinking the computer, artificial intelligence chip. <laughs> yeah, artificial intelligence risk chip. Thinking machine laptops. I'm talking about the 686 prototypes with the artificial intelligence risk chip. 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> but but they were they were both uh, he, he in both those movies he played kind of the Morgan Freeman and Shawshank exactly, uh, character. Yeah. He's the guy who can get it from yeah. time to time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Totally. But but I I think the best place to start though would be with sneakers because you know there is this very interesting influential stamp that is happening between all all three of these movies. Um, you know we we're kind of getting into a little bit of it there with the Jean Reno thing, but man, um, for me, I remember seeing Mission Impossible one in the theater, and you know it was uh, very exciting. I was maybe just the right age for that type of thing, uh, and I missed sneakers in the theater but you know would i feel like watched it you know half a dozen times uh you know on vhs or whatever or you know they played on tv and and all this Mm -hmm. so i became familiar with it but i feel like i saw mission impossible first because i had the impression that all the voice print and all the like sneaking part of that that whole set piece and and like the body temperature and whatever was like wait a minute are are they just ripping off mission impossible (laughs) and it was like no it was the other way around (laughs) yeah yeah strike that reverse it yeah yeah Yeah, it brought a lot of new or new stuff to for me i I saw this in the theater uh sneakers actually i remember this i went to see it with my grandpa um but uh yeah i i do remember feeling um that this kind of brought some really interesting ideas and it was very early internet or at least early data over the web, if you will, or yeah. transmitting information somehow. Um, and this was kind of an AI story way before what's happening right now with AI. And I was like, damn, they were really telling the future in this one. Yeah, the, all, all these movies were very fascinated with the early computer, like, oh, everything's going to be digitized and therefore hackable or whatever. Yeah. And like every one of them has a character like that in, in here. I love the scene where, you know, Robert Redford's listening to Dan Aykroyd or, you know, Whistler on his earphone, you know, and it, uh-huh. it's that it's got that key code on the door. And he says, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he just kicks the door, you know, he yeah. like, let's try that. And I just feel like, <laughs> like oh, uh-huh. it's Sounds like in, mm-hmm. Indiana yeah. Jones who, like, picks <laughs> yes, when he shoots yes. with the gun, the guy with exactly. the whip, you know. Sometimes I feel like Tom Cruise should do that. Like, he should yeah. go again. But he, but he can do anything. That's sort of the point is, like, you know, Robert Redford's older at this point. He doesn't want to, like, have yeah. to, you know, like climb through yeah. the air shafts but he does in his own way you know but um sometimes i wish tom cruise would kind of have that moment too where he <laughs> takes the like less tricky way out yeah like let's play this for humor yeah yeah well and, and that's what was so exciting about this movie and watching it again i you know i hadn't seen it in several years and i forgot all because I, I the my impression of it was that oh, it was just a lot of fun there's a lot of banter with all the colorful characters and whatever and that uh, I remember the, the sort of like uh, funny, like uh, everything's okay, you know, cue in the music and, and James Earl Jones, you know, getting <laughs> flustered at the end. And like, you know, so you, you have this like sense that the movie is, or, or I at least have this impression of the movie being, you know, sort of very fun and silly and whatever. However, watching it again, like there's a lot of tonal shifts that happen throughout the movie. There's a lot of like, you know, Great ups ride. and downs and yeah, it's a huge roller coaster ride. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's very funny. Yeah, uh, but it's also very suspenseful, and it's you, you get those like pangs of um, you know paranoia in in your gut when you're like in your oh no, they're like solving this mystery and like they're unlocking and everyone these has something like, to do. Yeah, and it, and it <laughs> yeah, all exactly. makes makes sense the way that they yeah. move through everyone's characters. You know, they yeah. all had their own business there, and yeah. Dan Aykroyd is arguably playing Ray Stance again, right from the Ghostbusters, yes. this conspiracy theorist trying to yeah. 
<laughs> get all the information out of the other government spooks, right? Like, was he just making up his own dialogue there? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, what did he bring to the table uh, in addition to the lines he was given? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the key meeting took place July 1, 1958, when the Air Force brought the space visitor to the White House for an interview with President Eisenhower. And Ike said, hey, look, give us your technology. We'll give you all the cowlips you want. So that's honey, what Cat- honey, don't listen to this man. He's certifiable. Your he's, husband knows about cattle mutilations. He's, he's ex-CIA. Touch. He knows the government's been suppressing for years. Well, and then like Ben Kingsley, I mean, uh. he shows up. You know, it's. I think it's really hard as a character to show up so late in the film. You know, yeah. like obviously we have that opening sequence, but he's yeah. such a good actor that you just like, you immediately at least understand where he's been, you know, and he's been kind of like hardened from being in jail and being the one who was held accountable. And he's, you know, kind of, I like rivalries in, in, in films yeah. like the social network, you know, or yeah. like Amadeus or something. There's this yeah. really interesting, <laughs> right. like yeah. kind of jealousy rivalry. Like he kind of wants to be Marty, but like mm-hmm. he never understood like the core essence of why marty did uh, why he did it you know just cut and the so- ponytail just cut it off <laughs> <laughs> yes his, his hair is awesome too. hey man it's the early 90s okay <laughs> i know i know yeah. and the aquarium i like the aquarium too i mean he definitely had a little bit of a james bond villain thing going on with like the ponytail and the aquarium yeah. and the like weird chairs and the-, yeah, the the full front corporation that he worked for the toy store right those Right. There's no toys being made there, right? It was a, it was a right. front for some nefarious plans. And then all of his the people that he hired, the dude from the Revenge of the Nerds, right? Timothy Busfield. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> pretty funny, you know, seeing Poindexter there being a being a <laughs> yeah. badass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, and, and speaking of that opening, I, I feel like there is, they're, they're playing off of all of the audience's expectations of baggage from, from Redford's career. Like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, like, all, all the president's men in there. Uh, the opening in particular really felt like Three Days of the Condor, especially when he's, like, he goes out for, for food out right. the, like, back door and doesn't get caught up in the, the mess, which is almost the exact same setup exactly. as, totally. yeah, as Condor. Great opening, too, in this yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and, and, and I guess what I'm getting at is, like, they really, like, built... Or it felt like anyway, they, they they really built this character upon this sort of age and time of Redford's career that he was in. And with that baggage of some of the movies he did in the 70s, okay, now he's he's this guy now. He doesn't do that stuff anymore. He does other things. He helps. It's kind of like Catch Me If You Can. He like helps uh, banks, whatever, if they have security, uh, you know, leaks or whatever. You know, so he's he's doing a different thing, but then he gets kind of sucked into the world he was uh, he was formerly in. And then, like the snow in that sequence, opening sequence, it then transitions into the snow on the TV or whatever. Oh yeah. And there was like a lot of really clever things like that that they would do yeah. that would kind of comment on technology and. Like... How about the the opening credits themselves? They right. Were, yeah. Anagrams. anagrams or yeah, yeah, that was really cool, and they were there all their names, you know. Uh, I didn't pick up on it at first. I was like, what the hell is that? And then yeah. that's why I'm terrible at that category in Jeopardy. Well, and, and I forgot the like too many secrets or whatever it was. Like, like, right. like the whole yeah. sequence C-tech they did with Scrabble. Like, that was really great. Yeah, yeah. C-Tech astronomy. C-Tech's not a word. How pissed off would you be if you were that yeah. deep into that Scrabble game and he just wiped that shit off? <laughs> you yeah. got the dictionary hey, out and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my dad loved puzzles. He loved, he would bring home, he'd do those puzzles in the Atlantic magazine. He, yeah. loved, he loved any kind of decoding puzzles. It was like <laughs> definitely what he did for fun. Wow. Yeah. Do you think he'd be able to solve the sea tech and, and like turn it into cootie rat semen or whatever it was? It was like, that's not it. That's not the one. Yeah. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. Oh, man. Whoa. What was that? Go back one. But 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 what's great about like this sort of uh, transition from the the '70s paranoia movie to to this movie, like they're playing on those ideas of what uh, the audience's expectations were of the '70s paranoia movies. There was definitely paranoia and suspense in these, but like they were also like it felt like they were tapping into some other things. I mean, obviously, the Redford movies, like we talked about, but like it was set in San Francisco. 
the home base for the gang felt so much like the one in the conversation. The conversation. They kind of go back and like John Cazale and they're having that little party there. And it's like an open floor plan loft uh, situation where everybody kind of has their little corner. And it really um, was this thing where it feels like, you know, especially for audiences at the time, if they were sort of at least vaguely familiar with some of those things, it would be playing on some of those expectations they had, you know, but the, but the movie had that more 90s sensibility where the whole idea in the 90s from the movie's perspective, you know, culture's perspective, was there's this optimism here that in the 70s was very much like, you know, the bummer ending came into play right. uh, quite often. Whereas the 90s kind of flipped it on its head. Not these. These are, these are great, lighthearted endings. Most, I think all three of them, right? They're all like really like, especially this one. This one's kind just of, straight up funny. Yeah. yeah. The, well, yeah, the, the, this, this one, you know, gets... It's wonderful. It's full, like bozo yeah. mode. It's like I love the bozo mode. At the end. Want, it goes full bozo. I want the 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 chick with the Uzi. I want her phone number. <laughs> uh, I I wanted to bring up uh, that I really liked how Sidney Poitier's character kind of led into and was teasing throughout the entire film why he was kicked out of the NSA oh. or the CIA. I think he was CIA, part of the CIA. Yeah. And finally, by the end, he pulled the Incredible Hulk moment where he was, you know, like, for my, you know, for my temper, right? That's all it was, was he, I had a bad temper, and then he just beats the hell out of those guys. Totally. Man, what a great reveal. That's the secret. I'm always angry. Exactly. That, that, that's what, kind of what I got out of that. Yeah. He was so good in this. Uh, everybody oh, yeah. is so good in this. And River Phoenix, I mean. Mary McDonald. Yeah. She everybody. was great. I love oh, Whist- Whistler yeah. is like my favorite though because David I mean, when, great. when do you get to see him draw? You know, like he's a blind man who's driving <laughs> yeah. across this parking lot. And, you know? and did it way better than the other 1992 movie, uh, Scent of a Woman? Wasn't that 92? Oh, right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That has been done. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that scene, but I'm glad you reminded me of it when he's driving, uh, the blind man driving. Yeah. yeah, he's fantastic. I thought he was, even knowing he's not blind now, after seeing him right. in 30 years of movies, he right. still had me convinced in this movie that he could not see. Yeah. Like, that was impressive. I mean, it, w- was the convincing part the part where he was reading uh, the Playboy written in Braille? <laughs> <laughs> like, Because it looks like he's reading, and then they just close yeah. it, and it says Playboy. <laughs> Again, there's a lot of cool visual jokes in this. They nailed the comedy. Listen, he does read Playboy for the articles. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe this. Now what do you say? The NSA killed Kennedy? No, they shot him, but they didn't kill him. He's still alive. That's it. I've had it. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Well, one one other uh, quick thing, I think, out of of this movie that um, was, was so fun was like, and and obviously we'll get into some of the uh, perhaps influences, some of the other influences I think on Mission Impossible. But um, I, I feel like Sneakers is kind of an underrated movie, even in our cultural zeitgeist. You know, it's I agree. Um, it's not spoken about enough. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's kind of uh, you know dropped off the old conversation. But I, I feel like it has certainly uh, influenced a lot of stuff going forward. Um, I mean. In particular, I feel like the sort of late 90s, early 2000s uh, Steven Soderbergh movies that like Out of Sight, that trunk scene in this mm. with the star of mm. Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. The, the sort of the lighting set up there. And then in Out of Sight, they're talking about Three Days of the Condor in the trunk. And then totally. there are so many things in this because, you know, it's a heist movie, everything else. Ocean's Eleven, right? Like mm. the, Right. Yeah. Because... Sidney Poitier and Robert Redford are like Danny Ocean and Brad Pitt. Like they Absolutely. have this mutual respect for Very each much. other. They're yeah. kind of like their own team by themselves and then the rest of the team afterwards, it, exactly. you know? And, and, and it's like, you know, he's trying to, it, it's like a, you know, personal rivalry. He's trying to win back his uh, sort of lost lover there. And then, right. Right, you know, right. Even like the set pieces where it's like the the guy with the balloons is trying to get through the security <laughs> or whatever, and all these things, you know. Oh yeah. Well, and then you know, one of Steven Soderbergh's favorite movies is The Hot Rock, which is another Robert Redford heist movie. Which is uh-huh. again, Robert Redford. There's something about him as a as a character that I think is like a Soderbergh favorite kind of character of like he's that reluctant guy to get involved but when he does get involved he's like the natural person to pull off all these things and he's Mm -hmm. 
that Danny Ocean character is like, right. like very to me Robert Redford kind of inspired. Absolutely. Well, I, and there's this other like weird thing that just you know it's like a you know just quirk of uh, fate or whatever. But there's there's this thing where it looks like Robert Redford is Brad Pitt's dad. It's like it looks like they're like very similar. That's why that movie Spy Game was so good. I think. Yes. They, yes. They, they look like a father son <laughs> yeah. duo, but they weren't. They do. And they acted yeah. like it too. I thought that's what made it you know, stick. Yeah. Well, then I didn't, I had to look up the chronology too, because actually Ving Rhames was in Mission Impossible before Out of Sight, because I was trying to yeah, figure out right. what was the order of that, because he was Foley's like perfect wingman in that as well. Like he plays the best yeah. wingman <laughs> yeah. ever. You feel like you can rely on him. Like he's going to come through for you. You never doubt him. Like, yeah, no, totally. I won't let this get out into the open. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. My one last favorite so scene in Sneakers, though, was my other last favorite, which was you were talking about the out of sight trunk. But, you know, was that scene, but also just the scene after it where, like, they start to deconstruct his, oh, yeah. his whereabouts. And it you again, it like leads with sound, you know, and Whistler gets on yeah. his kind of like. I heard a his, cocktail party. Yes, exactly. It's just so good. It, it like it keeps you on the edge of your seat. There's a cocktail party at the reservoir. Um, yeah. Yeah. Plus, I think that it was uh, geographically accurate where people that know San Francisco would be like, yep, they're correct. There is speed bumps on this right. bridge it's versus this, this bridge. bridge and not and, that bridge. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, they had all these gadgets. They had all the gear. And they yeah. had these ways of hacking into things or whatever. But... Maybe unlike Mission Impossible and the way the franchise, you know, gets further and further into just like, we'll just hack it and we'll Tech. have the, yeah. the, the thing. They kept finding all these very low tech ways to yeah. break into things. You know, it's like Whistler playing back with the bridge sounds and like, no, no, you guys are missing it. Like they kept trying to see him like type in his password, but it turns out if you were just listening, you know, totally. you, you, would, have, you would have understood what, what it was. And that the answer machine wasn't an answering machine. The, the whole thing where he just kicks the door in or whatever, yeah. the, the balloons, all, all those things where it's like, just from a writing perspective too, it's like they found really clever ways to solve all these little puzzles and all these little obstacles as opposed to just the the whatever machine uh, and beep, boop, boop, it's, we're in, you know. <laughs> totally. They set up a foil, you know, and then they found their way to solve it in a more analog way. I mean, that's what I, I like about the David Fincher's The Killer, too, is that, like, mm-hmm. I just like when, like, Speaking he gets... Of sound design. He get yeah, he gets, you know, this Amazon package through these, like, lockers <laughs> in a city, you know. I just, I like when you feel like you could actually kind of accomplish it yourself too, you know, instead like of having to have part of it, yeah. like this aquarium restaurant break, you know, water <laughs> and you're Called aquarium. <laughs> Kittrich, you've never seen it. <laughs> All right. Hunt. That's, yeah. Wow. You guys are really great at that. Why was there another team? I don't quite follow you. See if you can follow me around the room. The drunk Russians on the embankment at 7, 8 o'clock. The couple waltzing around me at the embassy at 9 and 11. The waiter standing behind Hannah at the top of the stairs. Bow tie, 12 o'clock. The other IMF team. You're worried about me. Why? I'll show you something, Ethan. Since your father's death, your family's farm has been in receivership. Now, suddenly, they're flush with over 120 grand in the bank. Your father's illness was supposed to have wiped out that bank account. Dying slowly in America, after all, can be a very expensive proposition. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. That, that scene is amazing. Is, it, is that our bridge to, to the impossible <laughs> mission here? Mission Impossible? M-I, as it's now called? M-I? Yeah. M-I. M colon I? Yeah, still the, uh, for me, the, the the top dog of the franchise. 
Without and, question. And, like, not even close. <laughs> it's not even close. I mean, I'm sure some of the other movies are good action movies, but this has it all. Every exactly. bit of it. Polish. Exactly. And I think when you get to the, the, the sort of very, very end of the, the third act there, like we're getting into you know, a lot of uh, the green screen stuff or whatever that um, sure. doesn't hold up in the same way. But everything leading up to that is extremely mm. analog and extremely like, you know, it's done in camera. All the like Tom Cruise in Rob Bottin makeup with ah. uh, looking like <laughs> <laughs> looking looking like Matthew Modine or whatever, Senator yeah. Matthew Modine. And, uh, <laughs> and all that. Why you uniform? <laughs> Uh, everything sort of um, about the movie like has this like you know look and feel where you're you're immersed in it and it doesn't break the spell the way it does when you know it's just hacking or it's just you know the the T1000 sprint or whatever you know there was this other team and you know the, the, all all that stuff like the the, the opening uh, oh set my up god the, the damn Gideons they stamped it he, like, yeah. all those <laughs> I, I know I brought this up to you over text, but I wanted to bring it up here. Uh, no. I, I do feel that De Palma brought with a lot of his giallo sensibilities. A lot of it came from Dress to Kill, which is kind of the, an American giallo film that he did back in the 80s. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of that here, but I feel like those set pieces at the end like make this a Hollywood film. You know, there's, Yeah, right. But I think that he, because he had that kind of more crafty, uh, mentality as like more of an independent uh, feeling director, or at least more like an in-camera kind of director. I think that's why this movie still works and still you can watch it today and not be, or still be fooled by even some of the clunky computer graphics sure. and the clunky hacking and, and codes and stuff, but still it works. Like you could, it still sells, I should say. Well, And it's because like he's, De Palma that is, especially at that time was still there's like such a uh, student or whatever of Hitchcock where it's like the suspense set piece uh this movie brings it um, and camera angles and like those you know the the far and close focus on some of the faces and everyone's in focus oh, you know right. Kittrich is so here like and so's split diopter thing. oh yeah split yeah. diopter yeah all three of these movies did split diopters a lot yeah. send him to yeah. Alaska you know mail him his clothes you know yeah. it's like that, that seems so hardcore <laughs> yeah. but the way that it's shot it brings so much like confrontation to it or so much yeah. like real energy to it every time and it's just a static shot but it He's just so good. I also think one of the best choices was, you know, making kind of the villain, the John Voight character, like one of them, you know, yeah. but but John Voight was so good in it, like because he has this sort of like fatherly kind of right. love for Ethan. But I I mean, for maybe all of towards, them. yeah, maybe towards the end, it goes to me a little off the rails but like like, like 75 when they're on the train you mean that, that, that's yeah that whole you know yeah, yeah. when he shoots his wife and like yeah. i still don't really understand why he didn't shoot ethan he shoots her but then he doesn't shoot him but up until that point it's like i feel like john void is such a great he just doesn't i just get really frustrated when people who are sort of the villain they just go too far with the kind of caricature of uh-huh. it and i thought he did it in such a like you don't really know why he even did it no. like you don't like he doesn't give you access but at the same time he doesn't go so nutty that you feel like it's a caricature or something he's I don't the know, only hint he gives as to why is you know that the president starts telling you what to do that son of a bitch how god <laughs> god damn he you know how how, how dare he or whatever yeah. and it's like but what, what so it's just more of like an anarchy thing right he was just trying to get this knock well, I mean, list it, just it, for money it's, it's the uh, it's the the, it, the last it's, score it's like, it's, like, it's like power trip or whatever and uh, not having that apparatus around him or, or, or the the mission anymore then all of a sudden you know he like what the the French guy talks about the the Ronin obsessed French guy in Ronin, um, the idea that you know you you no longer have these masters and this greater purpose. Uh, so so then so what, what you are have? you and, and how how do you how do right. you uh, go on? Right. Uh, the forty seven Ronin's uh, you know solution was to commit seppuku right across their belly, just disembowel uh, yeah. themselves. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean it, yeah, and, and speaking of that stuff, I mean I think you're right. Like the movie really uh, slips a gear at the end there. And I, I think almost like like sneakers too. It ha- it has like it maintained that like, that balance between it being like really really dark and really really funny sneakers that is, 
and then it really like pulled the rug and it was like okay why isn't ben kingsley shooting him why isn't timothy uh whatever his name was uh shooting him and it kind of has this thing where because it leaves you on that note that is the impression you're colored with but man in this one before it gets to that slipping the gear thing john voight in particular like his character and, and the way his character kind of like Went from being, yeah, the, the fatherly figure to the, I had to fake my own death. And uh, and then we get the, like, what really happened scene. We're kind of, like, seen in his mind's eye. But spoken differently. But spoken differently. Yes. And that scene is amazing. Very cool. That's very Giallo, too. You know, those, like, yeah. dreamy flashbacks. Yeah. And only in film can you do that. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, be able to have that conflict, you know? And they're like, I love that scene. It's like, it's Ethan's awesome. trying to figure it out. And so then yeah. he, like, re-says it again yeah. with, with, with the next option of whether or not, No, no, he could have done that himself, right? Yeah, yeah. right, it right, right, right. Exactly. amazing. But, but he still gave the Claire option in that, which was the option, right? Which, which is mm-hmm. probably what happened, yeah, exactly. Right, right. But it's the power of editing and filmmaking that you can kind of show these sort of inconsistencies <laughs> yeah exactly so good the yeah. juice in that scene is like the type of thing that like every um spy movie and every you know mystery wants to get to and they, they just hit it so hard in this one uh and speaking of hitting hard man the major set piece they they take the sneakers thing and like build upon it and like make it even more suspenseful i mean like you know it's even more ludicrous or whatever you know joanna's dad goes in there you know gets scanned 400 different ways and the floor is <laughs> activated so we can play snake on the computer or whatever <laughs> um but the way in which you know the, the whole scene is like put together and every you know the drop of sweat you know I was watching mm. uh, Mission Impossible with Alyssa, and she doesn't remember the movie. She apparently had seen it, but doesn't remember it. And like, and every ten seconds in that scene, she looked <gasps> like catching yeah. her breath, like you know, <laughs> like because she didn't have the scene memorized the way I did. You know, so it's like that sounded that like the water drip. That's obviously yeah. not from his hand. <laughs> and how the hell did he even get his hand in there? <laughs> You know, know, like it doesn't know. matter. If he had like caught it with his uh, the back of his hand, it would have made more sense. But like you know. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it's exactly. like right on the ground, but exactly. it doesn't matter because it's it amazing. Yeah, and and like the way in which his character was doing the sleight of hand magic, I feel like is what they were doing the entire time. So good. Oh, you mean this zip drive? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you actually think I'd let you have the knock list? Try any sleight of hand with my money, I'll cut your throat. But how uh, fascinating was it? Like this part, I didn't quite have planned out uh, ahead of time but uh it, it felt like maybe we should have but it feels like uh all of uh <laughs> joanna's uh frequent and recent collaborators uh were, were in some of these movies ah. steven zalian wrote a draft of this script or maybe early right, on maybe right, right we talked about fincher just recently you know yes. soderbergh the the set piece in this one especially the motion activated floor the light coming from below was done in Ocean's Eleven. Well, I think the first uh, film to do kind of like a lit floor was 2001, you know. Oh, they yeah. had the They had the, like, putting the lights on the floor instead of the ceiling. But... It was just this white right. nothing uh, in this yeah. building that looked very old school, you know, Langley <laughs> yeah. building, and it's like, uh, yeah. and then all of a sudden the, this the, room's the in sad, there. sad, like, hospital-like cafeteria that he was in, where she, like, squirts that shit in his coffee. <laughs> Well, and everybody has to go through a vent or something, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, this is the only way that you infiltrate anything. I mean, if you think at this point, Langley would have cameras in their <laughs> vents, you know. Well, maybe not in 1996. But also touching back on the opening sequence of the, yeah. I just think, I love when, and I think Ronan did a really great job of this too, when you have this sort of contrast between like a lot of people and then no people you know like like you go from a full arena to like the crowd dispersing but you Mm. know so like for that opening in the mission impossible they're in this banquet event kind of thing with all these people but then you go out into this like moody foggy like desolate like no one's you know walk way around the water and i feel like Kristen scott thomas who's like an incredible actress like she's like so haunting that scene where she dies you know and it's like not something you expect in a movie like this but it was done so well it was so like i mean i think that brian de palma does really know how to build suspense and like he can really draw it out and have it pay off you know Mm -hmm. in a really 
unique way that's like very Hitchcockian and his and in, and in his oh, own yeah. too, not just you know he's created it for himself, you know. But that opening sequence, I think, like shows off all the things he does so well, you know, and it, it's so perfectly orchestrated. And I think I love the opening of Ronan too. I think that that has an incredible opening scene, you know, of how all the characters kind of convene and meet. Right. And, and yeah. I, I, what, was, what was so nuts, uh, watching Mission Impossible again, it's mm. been, been a while, but the very end of Mission Impossible is where Ronan starts, essentially. It's like this like anonymous Irish pub uh, in Europe somewhere. And mm, right. it, it, was, it was such a, like an interesting handoff. Uh, oh, I, yeah, not the not the like very ending, right? Epilogue, because uh, the, the the very ending of Mission Impossible, he's on the plane and he's like, "Would right. you like a movie from the Orient or whatever?" Right, oh, no, no, yes, no, not that yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know when he's with Luther. At Luther, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, I wonder what happened to to Claire or whatever. Cheers to you, Luther. Being off the disavowed list. Hey, I'm the flavor of the month. And. Then we like have that scene almost reimagined by uh, John Frankenheimer as the opener of Ronin. Yeah, um, I hadn't seen this since probably '98 or 2000 even, and I forgot how fast they get you into the, into Ronin. Like it is yeah. like there's there's no bullshit at all in this movie. You're you're in and you are ready to go. And well, like nothing's happening in the first like five minutes, but it's so tense. Like you're just like right. gripping your seat. You're like, what is going on? <laughs> You're like, who's that? Wait, what the hell's he looking at? Who's that? Who's she? That's kind of how I was for the first time. But it didn't, it, again, it didn't matter, right? Because Frankenheimer was building this like whole thing and they've got them in this like bunk area or their own barracks where they need to stay during this job. You know, they had all the beds like lined up and it felt yeah. like a very Reservoir Dogs type situation. And she was kind of the Joe, right? Big, uh, big Joe, right. uh, given the mission. But like. Natasha Mc... <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Pink. But <laughs> Natasha and McKellen was McKellen was, was kind of I don't know. Yeah, she was kind of that role, right? Of like um the uh the Charlie of the Charlie's Angels, the person that kind of gives out the mission, although she right. was herself a terrorist. Um in in we'll find out more uh, of this. I'm although sure. I, I yeah. guess the, the Charlie was what, the, the man in the wheelchair that they kept referring oh, to? Yeah. Who the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> they never showed him, right? He could have his own movie. Like, I that know. could be a prequel, yeah. you know, to yeah. the Ronin. Because they never the showed who that was, right? It was always the man in yeah. the wheelchair. They, 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 they would talk about him, but uh, it, it it wasn't the third act surprise that I thought we were going to get. Because there, there's that that's never said, and then whatever's in that case. Whatever's in the case. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I yeah. love that they, they, they built upon the knock list <laughs> as a perfect MacGuffin and just turn it into like the ultimate MacGuffin. Like no one knows what's Nothing. in the goddamn case. If it's going to be amateur case. night, the price has got to go up. <laughs> hundred thousand now and a hundred thousand when I get back. Yeah. Oh, there's so many great lines. I love, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't say them the way you guys do, but I love the like, are you labor or management? Yeah. And then yeah. he says like, if I was I wouldn't management. have offered you a cigarette. If yeah. I yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I feel like, oh my gosh, that is so true about life. It's yeah. like management doesn't really care. Well, you know, exactly. And like, uh, all those lines, that's like, you know, lady, I don't walk into a place I can't walk out of. It's like, well, why are you getting into that van? You know why. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they just have such great, like, clever dialogue. I love the, you're either part of the problem, part of the solution, or part <laughs> of the scene. landscape. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's like. Jeez, speaking of landscape, so though, I, I, I think, like, that's a really interesting quality of this movie. Like, I, you know, it's it's certainly not uncommon mm-hmm. for spy movies to have this, uh, you know, sort of secret network of operators. It's the stars of the movie. It's also like, you know, there's this like, you know, teeming uh, world behind the world uh, of like people who are in the game. And then there's all, everyone else, all these spectators and all these, you know, all, all this, this, the, the, ghosts, the citizens yeah. or the civilians or whatever. Uh, but it, man, in this one, <laughs> you see the toll that these operators have on the civilians and collateral damage right shredded in this movie like all, every set piece is like them just getting blown away it's wild and, and they, they do it with such zeal it's like, you know, it's like there are two guys that get shot in that fucking cafe, cafe and they just drop either way with, with bullet holes yeah, yeah. they just like fall off screen it's jesus wild. 
Yeah. And in the arena too, yeah. they just go down. Like, yeah. I mean, we lost. Like, she's a real ice skater, right? I'm trying to think of her. What Katarina her name, Witt. Katarina yeah, and she Witt. she gets blown away. She even doesn't make it through this movie. All right. No one oh, is man, safe. I, I, I love how cold blooded that guy was. He was like, "Yeah, but what about your girlfriend?" I don't give a shit. Yeah, take the shot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't wow. know about the ice skating though. The ice skating, I felt like. I didn't. Yeah. It didn't need to be an ice skating case to me. Like I didn't really. But I. I never liked Did that ice match skating up with, like, in the like Russian Roger side of it? Yeah, the Russian. I guess it was the well, Russian. But, what I love about that detail was like when they were like at the dead end. They had already like done the things where they tapped all their friends for how do we get them. How how do we figure this out? How do we figure this out? And then they they kind of like are really pulling their hair out trying to figure it out. And they just happen to see the the case and they kind of you know are putting it together. And it kind of leads them there. Again, it's that sort of low-tech uh, solving the, the puzzle uh, type of thing that, that was happening so much in sneakers. This one probably the most out of all, right? There was no tech really in this movie. It was just guns and uh, and smarts. <laughs> yeah, not really. I mean, early on, the Stellan Sarsgaard character, he was like doing something with a computer, but they never really got into... Now they're, no. they're being yeah a they thing. yeah right so Skarsgård had his request for some technology but yeah. they didn't get into the 686 risk <laughs> prototype and then all this and then the R8 or the S8 that the the, the wheel man wanted right. uh, that was you know and he's like I got some nitrous but I'm like that's kind of that's low tech on itself right that's yeah. that's old school nitrous I mean. How quickly did he have to spray paint that case for it to rub off on <laughs> yeah. Robert yeah, well, De Niro's was the, jacket? Was still wet, you know? yeah. yeah, I mean, like, what part of that didn't quite... I mean, but I love... That was one of my favorite sequences was the bulldozering into that cafe. Yeah. It was just so well choreographed because people are coming from the different streets and then when he takes the case and then he throws it under the car because it's about to explode, right. that blocks off that way for them to get... Right. Back Back to Stellan's right. Scars Scar, you know. Right, so it's yeah. like everything. I like. I I really don't like in movies where the final sort of way somebody yes. gets away or something is not believable, it, you know, like, like or something. Or like yeah, and that like, one was so the, the, smart. The one that I always like love to reference is in Gone in sixty seconds, the the Nick Cage one. Yeah, uh, they're chasing him, and like the cops have a helicopter on him, and then like, and he hits the Nas and goes really fast, and the helicopter is like he's gone, and the helicopter like flies off to the side. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? You're in a helicopter. <laughs> I thought you meant the guy dying in the uh, the coffin at the end or whatever. Doesn't he get like thrown in a coffin? It's so ridiculous. Uh, anyway, yeah, I think that this movie, um, there's some. I I felt like watching it. There there is some rushed moments at the beginning and the end. I feel like the end is kind of summed up with one almost VO line that De Niro gives. And it's kind of like, I've been, I haven't, I never got out. I'm still part of it. You know, I've, I've just right. been here for Seamus. Uh, but outside of that, I think we, we, we've talked about movies being forgiven because of amazing set pieces, amazing endings, whatever. This movie has car chases that are, I mean, as good yeah. as, if not better than the French connection and things that are like, you know, top in cinema. This is unbelievable choreography. I don't think this one has ever been topped. Oh my God! It topped yeah. uh, Bullet. It topped French Connection. It topped To Live and Die in L.A. It did oh, all yeah. of those in this movie, and totally. and then some. In Nice, though, with the with this background of Nice as the invite, you know what I mean? Like yeah. beautiful cobblestone, these beautiful yeah, streets, like and, yeah, un- and Paris. I mean, come on. There were several amazing car chases, including the one where driving you know, the wrong way through, through, through the sunroof. He like <laughs> rocket launches that car, dude. And then they he went from grenade launcher wrong. to bazooka yes. in like one scene, <laughs> one cut. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. But but then that car chase right in the middle of the movie, like they go through six or seven set pieces in that set piece, including, yeah, going the wrong way, going in the tunnel, doing that thing where like that cop car flipped. Yeah. And, and as it's like turning and spinning slowly on its top, it was like a turnstile and the car just like went right through it. Was that a <laughs> fun incredible. mistake? Was that a mistake? You know what I mean? Like, he, he perfectly yeah. around that car. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Insane. Insane. All done in reality. No, uh, no yes. visual effects. And, and then that was the other thing. Like, like, you know, you would cut to the stars and they'd be inside the car and they'd have the sort of like Maggie yeah. from the Simpsons toddler, like fake wheel. And the real guy, a Formula One driver was on top of the car driving, you know, 120 miles an hour. Down oh my the Paris God. Streets. Is that how they did that? Yes. I need to see a behind the scenes of this. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's completely nuts. Yeah. 
and you know and 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 the other thing i guess like uh frankenheimer was very insistent upon was like not doing any slow motion in the movie his whole like fetish was like to try and do everything in real time and have that be the the very thrilling aspect of it and it just like it is um something that you really can't fake you know the the, the thrills out of this so, like if you were to undercrank the camera or right. to just you know, have yeah. these sort of omniscient mm-hmm. digital camera you know flying mm-hmm. under things it's like i think this frankenheimer you know. guy's pretty good I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah he's got a couple good ones but I mean, everybody in this movie is great too. Like all the actors, I just felt like maybe Sean Bean's character is a little underwhelming or a little underdeveloped. Uh-huh. But yeah. I just didn't understand. He kind of like, listen, you're just doing the guy from Goldeneye, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I love the the cameo of the guy who is the villain in Moonraker. He was the miniaturist, which I think was supposed to talk about the yes. Ronins, you know. Which he I was the Ronin uh, yeah. lover, or yeah, uh, f- historical Ronanophile. Yeah, yeah, Ronanophile. But I thought he was so fascinating. He seemed like yeah. he had like a whole life to him that he had done, kind of crazy thievery kind of things, and was retired and. Because how casual is someone when they're like, yeah, I need you to find this person. Why? You know, let me let me give you this really cool lesson about Ronan real quick. Yeah. All right, I'll find him. Oh, wait, you actually can do this? This yeah. isn't just, you you know, blowing smoke the whole time? Well, what, what was so great about that is like the, the movie had the patience to have that sort of thematic scene in At a the movie end. that was... Uh, and, and, and yeah, toward the end where it's like a movie that is action-packed and like very focused on the sort of thrills, they also managed to have the sort of patience to put something in like that. And it's no longer about the case anymore either in that moment. It's about your purpose in life. It right. becomes even bigger in that at that moment. I thought it was interesting. And I felt a little heat at the end there yeah. too of the getting <laughs> Natasha McKellen away, right? If you can't drop everything at the sign of the first bit of heat, right? Yeah, you, you, yeah. yeah don't get involved. And, breaking your own code, exactly. Exactly, And, and, yeah. and that's the thing, like, I, I think, but, but that, that scene with um, Michael Lonsdale... He was in the Bride War Black. He was the guy who got trapped under the stairs there. Yeah. Uh, he was also playing almost the exact same role a few years later in Munich, if you've seen that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Um, he's great. But his character and that moment with De Niro, like, it was like one of those things where it's like, it, it for me anyway, helped the ending work, that sort of low-key ending come together. Well, I also thought that, um, like, my favorite part of even though I loved all the car chases, the arena, all of the choreography, my favorite part was like Robert De Niro and Jean Reno, like their their bond, because yeah. like out of all the characters, they had their own sort of like moral code that was like completely separate from what the, what's being asked of them and yeah. what their job is. And I feel like they like recognized it in each other and they were different in the way they did it because Jean Renault's character is a little more like he goes into the tunnel. Like he says, like, right. I'm being I'm paid, paid to go. Being paid yeah. To do it. yeah. Okay. You aren't going in there. Yeah, I'm going in there. So are you. Why am I going in there? Why? To protect me. There is no protection there. If it's come out, we're fishing a barrel. What are you doing? Why do they want you in there? What are you, crazy? You know, you think so hard. Nobody ever told me that before. But I wouldn't go in there. What is it, sir? I don't like it. Look at it. Okay, okay. Okay, let's just do it. Let's just do it and be done, yeah? You don't want to go in there. I'm getting paid to go. It's that simple. Okay, come on, let's go. Yeah, so he is like slightly different. Like he's willing to be kind of second to Robert De Niro's character because it's just that's his sort of like philosophy. But they both have this same sort of like code because, you know, Jean Reno's character could have left at any point from this when it went kind of haywire. He could have left and said, I'm out of this, you know, but he stuck around i think you know and 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 that scene where they he takes robert de niro to get the bullet out of him was like i think like built their bond more that he had his back and robert de niro had his back and they were there for each other even though they had different agendas like they didn't they weren't really you know different backgrounds for sure I mean, yeah. I think Jean Reno is a straight up uh, thief, right? And right. Robert De Niro is technically <laughs> on the side of the law. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was one more scene about that whole thing to be, because I was like, wait, he said that. He said that he never left, right? <laughs> because yeah. you just, 
you want to have just a little more understanding that like this was all undercover, like he was acting like he left the CIA, but he never did. Mm-hmm. Or did he? And this was his way to get the guy caught. Right. His target was Seamus, right? It was never the case. Like, yes. that's kind of how he everything resolves at the end. He's like, I was never after whatever this thing was. Right. It's It was your boss. It was the terrorist that was running the IRA group. Supposedly, um, they had a different ending that they shot. But I guess in the test screenings, it didn't work where Natasha... Mac Leone or whatever, her kid Deirdre comes back. She's there at that cafe, but then this IRA van comes and grabs her before she could get to them. And I guess the test audiences didn't like uh, that. But yeah. I think John Frankenheimer liked it, but yeah. he, he, he gave that up, you know. But I, I think, like a darker ending. I think that her, his relationship with John Renault was stronger anyway, and that what they got out of that whole situation together meant more than like... Mm-hmm. Got a new buddy to go have espresso with. Yeah. <laughs> at least. At the very least. Yeah. And, and yeah. they actually, they spent a lot more time setting that up too. With I mean, and the Jean-Pierre character, uh, the Michael Lonsdale guy, was asking Jean Renault, like, what the hell's the deal with this guy? Like, you know, why can't you just leave him? He's like, you saved my life. It wasn't the case. I don't remember. Keep in touch. Well, I I also, you know, what was fascinating about pairing these movies, okay, so, so not only is there this uh, idea of the hammer without a nail and everyone was, you know, trained and, and set up to, to fight this Cold War that is no longer here, and all these movies kind of are grappling with that. But I, I love how they all have kind of the same ending where it's like there's this news report that kind of <laughs> yeah. ties these things up in uh, yeah. every single one of them. <laughs> all of them do that. That is so true. They all three of them do that. <laughs> in a surprise announcement, the Republican National Committee has revealed it is bankrupt. A spokesman for the party said they had plenty of money in their accounts last week, but today they just don't know where the money has gone. But not everybody's going begging. Amnesty International, Greenpeace, and the United Negro College Fund announced record earnings this week, due mostly to large anonymous donations. In a freak accident, a helicopter lost altitude, veered into a tunnel, and collided with a high-speed train on its way from London to Paris. It was the apprehension and slaying in France of the Irish terrorist Seamus O'Rourke, by parties still unknown, that contributed a stability, largely allowing the negotiations to proceed to their historic conclusion today. Oh, my one last little comment was I did like how he used that cup of coffee, Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah. He used it twice. I ambushed you with a cup of coffee. Try it again. ambushed you with a cup of coffee. That was so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great one. Well, I and and I guess that's what's interesting, too, about this movie is, uh, Ronan, that is, is that, like, you know, they have all this character stuff and they have all the dialogue that's like just not on the nose and like what was happening with Sean Bean's character as this guy who uh, was uh, sort of faking it and you know uh, was making himself out to be was that what it was seasoned than he was or you know yeah is, is that the is that the reason because he he just didn't live up to his CV is that kind of what happened I, it sounds I mean that, that that's my interpretation of it yeah but 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 what's great is like they give you a lot of yeah. hints at it but never quite spell it out for you and the, and there's a lot of things in this movie that kind of play in that arena which is like fascinating for a, a thrills and spills type movie it doesn't have to be all in your face right and I think that a lot of the good examples of that were um De Niro just all of a sudden seeing some guy driving around and he's like uh, making small talk with this person. And then he's the one that was going to get the information to find the people. And then you right. find out later on, he's his partner. They're right. working together the whole time. And like, it's like <laughs> nothing is ever like overt in this movie. It's they do a great job of keeping everything pretty hidden and masked. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Did you tell me how to find the post office? Do, uh, do I know you? No, I'm, I'm sorry. Do I know you? Because uh, how did you know I speak English? I got an English newspaper. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I beg your pardon. Joanna, thank you for joining us. It was a great discussion on these films. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug or anywhere on the internet that people can find you or locate you? Yeah, I mean, you can check out my concept artwork at joannabush.com. And then I we very briefly talked about Ripley, and I hope we could do a Ripley 
podcast one day. Is but that that's Ripley's coming believe out. it or not? <laughs> Ripley as in Thomas Ripley. The, the talented Mr. Series. The talented that's Mr. Out. Ripley, yes. It's coming out in April on Netflix. Yeah. And so I'm really excited about that. I worked in post production for Steve's Alien directly, and it was a really wonderful experience. And then eventually, at some point, there's also going to be the Jerry Seinfeld Pop Tart movie <laughs> that yeah. I worked oh, on. That's still happening. That's also Netflix. It's, I mean, it's. It, would, it was shot, so hopefully Great. it comes out this year. I'm so glad. Cause it's about the start of the Pop-Tart, right? The- uh-huh, the invention of the Pop-Tart. It was like the quickest yes I think I've ever said to a project because, I mean, like, like why not? Pop-Tarts? You know? I mean... Yeah. Seinfeld it, it and Pop-Tarts. Was, yes. It was the goal was to make Jerry Seinfeld laugh. You know, like if something did you, you did... It? I, I did, yes. All right. <laughs> So, yeah. So. Congrats. And also, if you haven't seen Rustin, you should definitely take a look at it. Um, it's nominated for lead actor. And, is there um, any movie you haven't worked on uh, recently, <laughs> Joanna? Yes, I didn't work on Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it was a great year in movies this past year. So I'm excited that, you know, hopefully the this, this coming year will be in a lot of great movies, too, to see. So... Exactly. Thanks Fingers for having crossed. me on board. Yes. Congrats on your success. And I, I, <laughs> I agree. I hope this brings more more good stuff in the uh, movie industry. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again for joining. That was a lot of fun. It was. Thank you, guys. So how'd you get started in this business? A wealthy scoundrel seduced and betrayed me. Same with me. How about that? All right. Well, we're going to keep this, uh, this nothing but great movies trend going. With the next episode, uh, where we watch the early films of Christopher Nolan. And uh, those early films are also all film noir. Uh, And those movies are Following from 1998, Memento from 2000, and Insomnia from 2002. That is the remake of the Swedish film. Which uh, we'll we'll get into all that a little bit more on the next episode. And it should be a very exciting show. Oh, it's hot in here. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll just open this window a little bit. I'll join you as soon as I'm through pounding oh. these breasts. Oh. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe and follow us on all the podcasts and social platforms at the Grindhouse Institute. And if you really want to give us a boost, check us out on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It helps us to get noticed. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll be back next time. Ciao. The 47 Ronin. 47 samurai whose master was betrayed and killed by another lord. They became Ronin, masterless samurai, disgraced by another man's treachery. For three years they plotted, and then one night they struck, slipping into the castle of their lord's betrayer, killing him. Nice, like that. My kind of job. All 47 of them committed seppuku, ritual suicide, in the courtyard of the castle. Well, that I don't like so much. But you understand it. The warrior code, the delight in the battle, you understand that, yes? But also something more. You understand there is something outside yourself that has to be served. And when that need is gone, when belief has died, what are you? A man without a master. Right now, I'm a man without a paycheck. The Ronin could have hired themselves to new masters. They could have fought for themselves. But they chose honor. They chose myth.